This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Thanks for tuning back in to episode 16 of Bobcast. Here we're going to be continuing our chapter on general revelation. I'm Caleb. I'm Andrew. And I'm Mark. So we're picking up at the break at the top of page 26, and we will be finishing the chapter today. What? Woo! That can happen? Believe it or not. We went through Bobbing's six proofs of the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, the correspondence argument, and the governance argument. And all the while, those evidences aren't enough to actually compel a man to believe who God is, uh, to honor him as creator and as Lord of all things. But nonetheless, uh, this general revelation uh, is in service of special revelation. So we're going to pick up on page 26 where Bob Inks going to be talking about how there's something in man that has a capacity, a disposition towards the divine, towards the idea of deity. So, so we have all these evidences, and as we see here at the top of page 26, Bavink gets us going with, After all, the revelation of God in nature and history could have no effect upon man if there were not something in man himself that responded to it. So here, Bavink is going to go into his whole treatment of the divine sense that exists in each and every image bearer of God. So therefore, every single human being has this God-shaped vacuum in their life, and this is going to be Bavink's treatment of that. It's basically tying together what he said up to this point in this chapter, where we've talked about all the various things that point to there being a God in general revelation and creation and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think we should really bring attention to what he says here next, this metaphor of how man has some kind of disposition to God. Uh, he uses the example, the beauty of nature and art cannot give man any pleasure unless he has a feeling for beauty in his bosom. The moral law would find no responsive chord in him if he did not himself acknowledge the voice of conscience within him. Uh, so yeah, we do see uh, many things from the past couple chapters being tied together here. The very fact that uh, we have the sense of beauty, the sense of goodness, and the sense of truth in us says that those things had to have been put there somewhere. There is an innate an innate capacity, an innate longing to have uh, a sense of true goodness, uh, real goodness, to have a sense of total objective truth and an idea of perfection in beauty. You know, and, and in this way, man is uh, so tuned um, like an instrument. Man is so tuned to the key of God in a way. God has to strike the chord, but man is in the key of God. Yeah, yeah. Bobbing says this so clearly again in the middle of that passage. Uh, and so, too, the revelation of God in all the works of his hands would be quite unknowable to man if God had not planted in his soul an inerasable sense of his existence and being. Like, we're hardwired to know God, to, to have relationship with God, to love God, to worship God. It, it's in our DNA, right? That's just who we are as mm -hmm. image bearers, as, as, 
as human beings. That's why, you know, hearkening back to last week's episode, you know, that whole correspondence view, this is something that you see across every people group throughout history is this need for the divine, this sense of the divine. I want to underline what you said there that uh, it's not erasable. And that that's such a wonderful thing that despite the fall, despite the sin of our first parents in the garden, and despite our own sins, that can't be removed from us. We suppress it in our sin, but it can't be taken away. It's always been there and it always will be. Right. That very next sentence, Bavink really hits this one home. He goes, the indisputable fact is, however, that God himself has added to the external revelation, all that stuff about nature that we've been talking about and how that's been revealed throughout history. So, so God, that God himself has added to the external revelation in nature an internal revelation to man. So there's something, not not only is all this stuff going on in, in the created world around us, the setting in which God has placed us, but but there's something created inside of us too that, that makes us sensitive to those things that are that are outside of us. In a way, God's general revelation occurs in and through us. He reveals himself in the way he has created us to know him. This sense of divinity that Calvin talks about, uh, had al- he had also called it the seed of religion. That seed has been planted from the beginning, and it can blossom. It can blossom, but it has to be watered by God. Right, because it is only God who gives life. Because of sin, because of the fall, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We don't understand. We can't seek God. We need the Holy Spirit to give us life. You know, so scripture gives us evidences uh, from the very outset that uh, that man has something in him that responds to God's uh, revelation in nature and history. Bob Inc. here appeals in this next paragraph. After God had made all things, he created man and created him immediately in his image and after his likeness. God is, uh, from the very beginning, present in creation and involved with his handiwork, and he so intentionally makes man and man alone out of all creatures to be in his own image. Um, that seems to imply that there is, uh, I mean, there, there's a natural relationship there. There is this disposition towards God, this sense of divinity, that uh, if man had not fallen, then uh, it would have suddenly turned into a certain and sure knowledge of uh, this deity through revelation early on. But since man did fall, uh, that's where that divinity is suppressed. And now, as Bobink says, like the lost son in the parable, He's fled his paternal home, but still, even in his most distant straying, he cherishes a memory of his origin and destination. That sense still lingers there. He just ignores it. Or tries to replace it with something else. Right. Be it false religions or the lack of religion, and yet still trying to have some kind of understanding of of moral upright living, of a higher power, of whatever else you might call it. But the various things people try to replace God with when they have rejected him. Right. Bobbing finishes up that that paragraph with like everything we've been talking about whenever we go to Romans 1, which seems to be every episode, he does not leave him without witness. Uh, He being God does not leave himself without witness in the human heart and conscience. God is constantly there showing his people, hey, I'm right here. Yeah, there's there's still something lingering in there. You know, I was uh, actually just looking at from uh, Reformed Dogmatics Volume 1, Bob Inc. 
notes how uh, many of the church fathers like Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and so on, had assumed the operation of the word in uh, in the pagan world, even though the things that they did, the ways that they acted, they, you know, they had some kind of sense of justice, sense of goodness and beauty. Uh, they had various forms of worship, religion. You know, they, they had these kind of little residual vestiges of like, okay, there's something supernatural out there. There's something to be worshipped out there. Well, they've just, as Bobbing puts it, made it dumb. They dumbed down the truth, rather. That this tells us the truth is not wholly concealed from man, which is much of what Paul says uh, on Marcel in Acts 17, uh, 22. You know, men of Athens, I perceive... In every way, you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. You no, know, he gave life to everything. Uh, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He's addressing the Greeks as, as having had some kind of notion of this, but that it's been so distorted and twisted in sin. Right. And, and Bobby continues with this notion. He goes, it is a, a consciousness of the divine in us, which enables us to see the divine outside of ourselves, just as the eye enables us to detect light and color and the ear equips us to take notice of sounds. It is as Calvin called it, a sense of divinity, or as Paul described it, an ability to see the invisible things of God, namely his eternal power and Godhead in the visible things of of creation. So there is again this this hardwiring for for humanity to have relationship with its creator God. And and regardless if you know they know that it's the Christian God or not, something is going to be forced to fill that void and a square peg in, in a round hole like it's it's not going to fit, it's not going to do it. It's always going to leave that individual wanting until they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and and have a proper relationship with God the Father by the Holy Spirit. And as we have that uh, sense of wanting it, it I mean it, it causes us to inquire, inquire within uh to start reflecting on our very nature and the order around us, the purpose and meaning of everything. As he goes on underneath, uh, at the very end of page 26, underneath the mind and will, underneath our thought and action, there is in us a self-consciousness which is interdependent with our self-existence and seems to coincide of it. Before we think, before we will, we are, we exist. We exist in a definite way. And in indissoluble unity with this existence, we have a sense of existence and a sense of existing as we are. And the core of this near identity of self-existence and self-consciousness is the feeling of dependency. Now, for those of you who have studied theology, I don't know, I have here in my margins, you know, I'm kind of scratching my head going, I know he's not talking about Schleiermacher, but, you know, the whole uh, dependency thing was Schleiermacher's big shtick. And Bob ain't coming after him. He's giving us a biblical definition of, of what this dependency looks like. This this isn't this this notion of this feeling, this world soul, this kind of quiver in the liver that you hear people talking about. But this dependency is is on a person who has revealed himself and that we can actually have relationship with, not just this ethereal feeling that we're looking for. We're not trying to be introspective and have just this feeling of total dependency, and that's you uh, having a relationship with God, but it's total dependency on this God that is revealing himself to us. 
there is an object of that dependency. We are dependent on something, on someone. We are dependent on God. Dependence is not the end in and of itself. Right. He continues on at the end of this paragraph. He says, We are dependent upon everything around us, upon the whole spiritual and material world. Man is a dependent of the universe. And further, he is dependent together with other created things and dependent this time in an absolute sense, that objectivity that Andrew was talking about, in an absolute sense on God, who is the one eternal and real being. Bavink here is is addressing everything that kind of happened in 18th century modernism with Schleiermacher. You know, the, the Reformed churches really took a nosedive under him in Germany during that time. And Bavink is taking his terms and he's, and he's pointing them back to to the God of the Bible. Uh, th- this is not the God of the dead letter. This is a living and active God. This is a God who, you know, works throughout nature and history and, and has revealed himself to us as we'll get into special revelation later. But th- this is a completely different God than what Schleiermacher was talking about in those times. When he talks about basically what the Schleiermacher's approach, which is just that feeling of absolute dependency that's not really anchored to anything, and basically what that would produce, he says it would it would be a feeling which would lead man to impotent revolt or to a stoical passive resignation. If you're defined by this absolute dependence, if that is so critical to you and yet you never come to a realization of what you're dependent on there's no purpose there there's no end goal no end game to that that either leads to revolt because you're disillusioned basically your faith never at any point becomes sight it never becomes actual knowledge or the passive resignation that just you can't make sense of anything Right, this this divine sense is is kind of a double-edged sword, right? If it's pointed in the right direction, it's a beautiful thing that drives you to a continually deepening relationship with the God of Scripture. But apart from that, it can take you everywhere else. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's really kind of scary if you think about it. I mean, that hole in each and every human being needs to be filled by something. And left to our own devices, we can fill that with some really dark and awful things. I mean, it can push us to desperation and to madness. I mean, look at some of the evils that have been perpetuated in the name of false religions. Like you look at pagan practices of ancient times, like we're going to sacrifice our children in hopes that some deity we haven't quite figured out, maybe that's what will get them to send rain so our crops will grow. The feeling of being dependent on something, but never really having knowledge of the the deity it could lead you to try like strange and desperate and really awful things and even look at god's people and kings like when when we look at the reign of manasseh and, and how you know he gave his own son to molech like th- these are supposedly god's people and god's people are the one filling that void with that child sacrifice that you're just talking about i think you can take that further where we have to understand that's not just a religious distortion in the sense of of, of cultists in the sense of worship but also in uh, i mean it's it's perversion of of the true good and the beautiful uh you end up with a twisted ethics and morality you end up with a totally foreign truth uh that's so detached from the word of god that will drive us to uh, unspeakable evils you know we, we can go back to things like like hitler as it is the ideas of a having some kind of an ethical truth, you know, a system where he wants to go and purge people from the earth. The same sort of evil uh, of religious fervor, uh, blind beliefs, 
that yeah that that are not too different from what we see in things like uh you know second kings and manasseh or even like secular supposedly secular ideas like marxism where we attempt to essentially create a utopian society on the earth but in order to accomplish it we have to resort to coercive and immoral and often deadly means to achieve it. We need the guiding hand of, of I mean, what is uh, true justice for injustices and abuses in society. Right, and while Bavink does say that very poignantly, he says it very shortly, very quickly, and, and he moves on to kind of more of an optimistic bent here, talking about hence it is that this feeling of dependency does not carry discouragement and despair in its wake, but rather prompts man to religion, to serving and honoring the Godhead. In other words, the dependency of which man is conscious over against the divine being is of a very special kind. So let's bring this back now to the life of the believer. Like God is using this in each and every one of our walks as Christians to draw him closer to himself. And in that sense, this is a very beautiful thing. I mean, we can see what happens when uh, man kind of pursues those things in his fallenness, but in Christ, this is this is a beautiful thing, and, and it and it keeps us motivated to to run the good race, to fight the good fight. He he goes on to say, it is the dependency not of a slave but of a son, be it a lost son. This last sentence is is worth the price of admission. The sense of divinity, therefore, as Calvin wrote, is at the same time the seed of religion. It is this glorious God and how he has hardwired man to follow him that motivates us and drives us in, in the Christian walk. Well, and this brings us back to, I mean, what's Boving's thesis essentially of this entire work? God and God alone is man's highest good. Here we see that again. God is man's highest good. And we are all hardwired to know him. This is basically the path we take to get there. Basically what God has given us in order that we might get there. That's going to conclude our discussion of chapter 4 of the wonderful works of God. It is also, sadly, going to bring us to the end of an era here at Bobcast. So please stay tuned for the following special announcement from Mark. Hey Bob Squad, this is Mark. I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you guys for a wonderful experience. You know, when Caleb, Andrew, and I were dreaming up the Bobcast around the fire pit here at Westminster Seminary, California, we had no idea that it would gain the following that it has. I mean, we've had nearly 5,500 downloads at the time of this recording and reached 31 countries some of which are in predominantly Muslim countries. This is insane. Uh, so it's with a heavy heart that uh, I'm letting you guys know that I'm going to be stepping away from the cast. Andrew and Caleb are still going to be bringing you guys that great content. My wife just gave birth to baby number four for us, and we're entering the final year of my time here at Westminster Seminary, California. And I just really need to put first things first. And as fun as this has been, I really need to focus on my growing family, my classwork, and working on licensure for the OPC. Uh, so I'm going to have to be stepping down from, from my role at the Bobcast. If you could remember us in your prayers, it would certainly be very much appreciated. I just wanted to say thank you to you guys for listening, and thank you to Andrew and Caleb for the wonderful nights of discussing Herman Bobbing's The Wonderful Works of God. I look forward to joining the rest of the squad, hearing the guys talk about Bob Inc., and learning from him as well. 
So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And for the last time, tote zines. So this is Mark's final episode with us here on Bobcast. I just want to say thank you, Mark, for coming on this journey with us and helping us turn Bobcast from an idea into a reality. We'll miss talking Bob Inc. with you, but we look forward to seeing God's work in your life, in your family, and in your ministry. Now, as Mark said, Bobcast will continue. Caleb and I will continue to release new episodes each Monday, Lord willing. And we are working on some new and exciting things behind the scenes that we hope to be able to share with you soon. So thank you for listening, and until next time, tot zines. Tot zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Bobcast. And email questions or comments to bobcast at gmail.com. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reform Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reform Podcasters feed to get more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.